In February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference at Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The title of the conference was Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that weekend, I gave a series of four lectures and a sermon on this subject matter. There is far, far more material than I could ever deal with during just four lectures. Since that time, I've expanded these mess, uh, the information to about 17 messages. I encourage all those listening to also go to my publishing website at triumphantpublications.com. On my publishing website, you will find all of these messages posted and a link to these messages via sermonaudio.com. Also, a book is being printed with the same title, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise, that will be released sometime in mid-June. If you don't want to purchase a book, you can go to my website and you can click on a button titled Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise Transcript, and you can read for free an electronic version of my book. The issue of theistic evolution is a growing problem among various churches and institutions in our country. May the Lord bless you as you seek to understand this serious compromise. The title of my final message in this lecture series is The Value and Necessity of a Presuppositional Apologetic, or How Do I Know the Bible to Be the Word of God? One of the major points that I was seeking to convey throughout this lecture series in all of my analysis of the various compromisers of the biblical doctrine of creation was that the compromisers, even though they gave lip service to the, to the primacy and authority of Scripture, they were guilty of functionally denying the authority of Scripture. The theistic evolutionists that I examined all said that the findings of science were necessary to aid in our interpretation of Scripture, particularly regarding the early chapters of Genesis. I want to reiterate that such an approach is a very serious compromise of the Christian faith. I noted that making science as a filter for discerning biblical truth is akin to what Roman Catholicism does with respect to the relationship of Scripture to church tradition. Vatican II expressly said, quote, Thus it comes about that the church does not draw her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Hence, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal feelings of devotion and reverence. End of quote. For Martin Luther and others of the Protestant Reformation, one of the great battle cries was sola scriptura, Scripture alone. When Martin Luther was brought to trial before the Diet of Worms and asked if he would recant his views, he spoke these famous words. He said, quote, Unless I am convinced of error by the testimony of Scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, 
by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Sola Scriptura was but one of the several great battle cries of the Reformation, but one that was and still is absolutely essential for maintaining the purity of the church. To lose the battle for Sola Scriptura is to lose the war in terms of maintaining the integrity and authority of Scripture. This is why elders must never yield an inch in this regard. This is how once faithful denominations eventually descend into apostasy. The only lens needed to interpret Scripture is the Scripture itself. It is self-attesting. It is its only authority. This is the essence of a presuppositional approach to apologetics. The field of apologetics pertains to the defense of the Christian faith. Throughout the history of the church, there have been various methodologies in defending Christianity against its gainsayers. But I believe the most effective and faithful defense of the faith is that of a presuppositional approach. This is the approach that is taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Presuppositional apologetics is one of the distinctives of my denomination, the RPCUS, the Reformed Presbyterian Church in the United States. This is because we are convinced from chapter 1 of the Confession that this is its perspective, that this is exactly what the Word of God teaches. As Martin Luther said, Here I stand, I can do no other, must be our stand as well. If we lose the battle for Sola Scriptura, we lose the war. The reason being is that the doctrine of Scripture is the very foundation upon which all is built. If this foundation crumbles, so does every edifice built upon it. Some Christian apologists, that is, defenders of the faith, they want to say that the Bible is basically reliable. Now, what does that mean, basically reliable? Does this mean that the Bible is 95% reliable, which then would suppose could, would, that would qualify for basically reliable? One could even say that if 51% of the Bible was reliable. That would qualify for basically reliable because it would be a majority. However, in the battle for the sole authority of Scripture, we must proclaim and insist on the absolute inerrancy of the Bible in everything that it says. We must have a Bible that is 100% reliable. We cannot have one, not even one error in the Bible, otherwise... We lose the whole war. Think for a moment. Who and what is the criterion that we would use to determine whether there are 10% errors in the Bible? And if there are 10% errors in the Bible, how do we know absolutely, unequivocally, that there are 20% or 50% of errors in the Bible? If the Bible can be wrong in one point, then it could plausibly be wrong in many areas because by what standard would one use to determine what part was correct 
and what part was wrong. It's like a crack in the dam. Eventually, it will destroy the whole dam. Not only must we maintain, in principle, the total inerrancy of Scripture, but we must maintain the comprehensive authority of the Bible. This means that the authority of the Bible extends to every part of the Bible. It is all equally authoritative, not just, for example, the New Testament. The doctrine of Scripture is the very foundational doctrine, and it is why the Westminster Confession of Faith and its delegates had it as the first chapter of the Confession of Faith. What we know of God, Jesus, the plan of salvation, are all derived from the Scripture. This is why it is the foundational doctrine. My view and your view of Scripture will determine our philosophy of life, and it will affect our whole manner of life. It will determine our moral standard, what we consider to be right and wrong. I want to ask a question, and the way that you as a listener answer the question will determine whether you sufficiently glorify God or whether you glorify yourself. question is this. Why do you believe the Bible? A subsidiary question is also, what confidence do you have that the Bible is God's real inerrant revelation to mankind? Now be very careful how you answer this question. A person might say, well, I believe the Bible is God's word because it appears to be a good source of wisdom on how to love one another. This is a moralistic, pragmatic approach. The basic problem with this approach is that it becomes extremely subjective, dependent upon our feelings. You've heard people uh, witness to others and say, well, just try Jesus. Well, the problem of using that approach and saying, just try Jesus, what if the people try Jesus and they come back and say, well, I tried him, but he didn't do anything for me. Well, not only do you have that moralistic or pragmatic approach, you have what some call the pluralistic approach, which doesn't necessarily make the Bible as the only accurate source of practical living, for example, some would say, well, the Book of Mormon can easily be a comparable standard under this moralistic or pragmatic approach. This approach doesn't rule out any other religion, per se. This person thinks that they want to cover all their bases and, and take the good out of all the religions of the world and come up with their own syncretistic religion. When you ask someone, why do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and if they say, well, I believe the Bible because after examining it compared to other religions, it just makes sense. There are no logical contradictions that I can see. In other words, the Bible is God's word because it is logically consistent. We call this the rationalistic approach. This is where we believe the Bible because it is based upon sound reasoning, sound human reasoning. Now, we know the Bible is rational. We know that there are no logical inconsistencies with it. But should we, we, 
But we should not base our belief that the Bible is God's word because it is reasonable. The problem with this approach is that it glorifies human reasoning rather than fully giving the glory to God. Brethren, the Bible does not derive its authority from man. God's revelation is not to sit under the tribunal of man's reasoning. While one may not be a pluralist, a rationalist, a moralist, a person might say, well, I believe the Bible to be God's word because all the evidence points towards it. We call this the evidentialist approach. However, the problem with the evidentialist approach is that while the Bible is a, it is a historically rooted faith, it does not derive its authority on the basis of the preponderance of the evidences. Somebody has to interpret the evidence. And people have a tendency to view the evidence the way they want to. And in our whole lecture series on theistic evolution, that is exactly what has happened. People will interpret the Bible the way they want to interpret it. And considering this example of evolution, you may have scientists who look at the evidence and dogmatically affirm, as they do, that evolution is a scientific fact. Then you have other scientists, particularly Christian-believing ones, known as creationists. They look at the same evidence, and they come up with entirely different conclusions, saying the evidence demonstrates creationism, not evolution. Well, on this criterion, who's right? Evidence are interpreted in light of one's committed worldview. Besides, if evidence is the basis of why one believes the Bible to be the Word of God, then what happens when someone comes up with, with some supposedly convincing evidence that refutes the Bible's facts? When that happens, the person loses their faith because it was always rooted in men's opinions and not in the Scripture alone. Then you have the approach that says, I believe the Bible because it is a commonly accepted faith. This is what we call the utilitarian approach. This is where truth is what the majority believe it to be. Something must be true, people think, because 70% of the people that I know believe it. In this mindset, the Bible's authority is contingent upon the views of the majority. After stating all of these various approaches, then what are we saying is the God-honoring way to answer the question, why do I believe the Bible to be the Word of God? The answer is, the, the proper answer is, the Bible is true because it claims to be true. It is a self-evident truth. Someone who's listening might say, Seriously, are you kidding, Pastor? Are you saying that we are to believe the Bible to be God's Word simply because it claims to be the Word of God? And the answer to your question is, yes, most definitely. This person may say to me, well, that's got to be the most narrow-minded, stupidest approach I have ever heard. The person that say, could be a critic of the Bible and says, 
The Bible cannot be true simply because it says it's true. To which I respond, why not? The issue is whether it is true. If the Bible is true, then truth is narrow. Then it is dogmatic. The critic may respond to me and say, you can't dogmatically say that the Bible is true simply because it claims to be true. That's circular reasoning. To which I respond, what's necessarily wrong with this in principle? Well, the critic says, well, to be true, something must be verifiable by something else. To which I respond by saying, well, who says so? When dealing with man-made concepts, that may have some credence. But we're dealing with God here. We're dealing with God who's accountable to no one. When it comes right down to it, human thinking begins with certain presuppositions, certain truths that are self-evident. All thinking assumes certain things to be true from which it builds upon. The scientist assumes what? He assumes that there is order in the universe, whereby he makes an hypothesis. He makes observations. He tests these observations. He looks at the data and makes some conclusions. This is the, co the commonly known as the scientific method, which presupposes order by which one can have predictability. You cannot have any kind of predictions if one presupposes chaos. The Bible comes to us with this bold claim that God is a certain way and that his revelation given through his prophets is his divine will. God claims absolute authority. God says that he is the I am that I am, meaning that there is nothing upon which God is dependent. God, by his very nature, is absolute. He comes with sovereign, almighty power. He knows all things. He sees all things. He's everywhere present. He's the creator of the universe. He sustains the universe by the power of his being. Tell me, how else can this kind of God reveal himself to man besides with self-attesting authority? God never, and I mean he never, asks for man's opinion first before he does anything. He doesn't need any more facts. He created all the facts. He doesn't need the collective wisdom of the creature because man is the creature and God is the creator. The creator knows more than the creature, and that's why he's the creator. One of the most important Bible verses is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Since when did God obligate himself to satisfy my intellectual curiosity in order for him to be God and for his revelation, the Bible, to be true and authoritative? Jesus, being God in the flesh, astonished the learned because the Bible says that he taught with authority. That's because he's God. Jesus said that he was the truth. 
He called men to repent of their ways of thinking and acting because they would be judged by his word. Now, of course, you can have the critics say to Jesus, of which many did say to him, well, I don't believe you. Now, when people say to God, I don't believe you, does that make God shiver in disappointment? Oh, I can't believe they don't believe in me anymore. What am I going to do? That's absurd. The Creator has created the creature, and God, as the Creator, can dictate to the creature whatever he wants to dictate. Jesus said that the very words that he spoke to men will be what judges them on the terrible day of judgment. Whether they believe it or not, that is absolutely irrelevant. The Bible is true because God says it's true. And I believe what God says by faith. You see, faith trusts the object that is boldly asserting for me to believe something. Faith doesn't say, excuse me, Jesus, but I don't think that makes sense to me. So it cannot be true. No, faith does not say, excuse me, Jesus, but most Americans don't think you're the only way, the truth, and the life. Faith does not say, excuse me, Jesus, but let me check first with other great philosophers and religious teachers and compare your word with theirs. No, faith simply says, God says it in his revelation, therefore it must be true. I, by faith, will presuppose the veracity of Christianity because God demands it. In insisting on presupposing the Bible to be true, and that is why I know it to be true, that's not intellectual suicide. The Bible is logically consistent. But that is because the Bible is true. Rationality rests on the foundation of God's truth, not vice versa. Yes, the evidence does point to the truthfulness of Christianity. But that is only true because the Bible is true. Evidence rests upon God's word, not vice versa. The facts of the universe are what they are because God created the facts and told us about them in his revelation. So yes, I'm going to presuppose the existence of this God. And yes, by faith, I'm going to trust in his revelation, the Bible. Dear listener, this is how the Thessalonians came to know that Jesus Christ is who he is, because they chose by faith to believe the preaching of Paul about Jesus. They received the preaching as the very preaching of God. They received Paul's preaching for what it really is, the Word of God. And guess what? How did they know this? How did they know Paul's preaching was the Word of God? It's because God told them. That's how. Well, let's take a look at several statements from the Westminster Confession of Faith in its chapter 1, titled, Of Scripture. In chapter 1, section 4, we read, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, 
dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. End of quote from the Confession of Faith. And in the Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 5, it reads, quote, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenly and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. End of quote from the Westminster Confession. As we can see, it is from these sections of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we see from these sections from the Westminster Confession of Faith, we see that the Bible is self-evident, that it believes itself to be the very Word of God. It is self-attesting. We call this the presuppositional approach. But notice what the Confession brought out from the Scriptures, from the proof text that support those statements in the Confession. But our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth is due to the inward work of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do I know the Bible to be the Word of God? It's because the Holy Spirit told me. If you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, it's because the Holy Spirit told you. This is exactly what happened to the Thessalonian believers. This truth is set forth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, which reads, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. End of reading from God's precious word. The word being preached by the Apostle Paul, the gospel is the very power of God. Their conviction as to its truth was due to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. How do I know the Bible to be the Word of God? It's because the Holy Spirit powerfully persuades me to embrace the Bible as its own authority. The Word of God is powerful because the Holy Spirit makes it powerful. When our sovereign God goes forth to save people, the Holy Spirit attends to the preaching of the Word of God, convicting men of the truth, of the gospel message, and convicting men of the truthfulness of all of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit brings a conviction that the Bible is indeed God's true Word. The Christian doesn't need anything else 
but the Bible and the Holy Spirit to be led into the truth. After all, Jesus said in John 16:13, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. End of reading of God's precious word. We see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his arrest. He prays as recorded in John 17, 17. Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. How do I know the Bible to be the word of God? Because I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. How do you know the Bible to be the Word of God? Because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit too. One of the great passages in the Bible that supports that truth is 1 John chapter 2, verses 20-24, which reads, quote, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he has made unto us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So ends the reading of God's word. The Holy Spirit's anointing, its power leads men into all the truth. The Holy Spirit is the true teacher. Yes, God uses certain men. He uses his preachers. But it's not the man. It's the Spirit who illumines the preacher to perceive truth who in turn proclaims that truth in the power of the Spirit to other people. When that word of God is read or preached, the Holy Spirit drives that word from God's creature and drives that truth of God's inerrant word into the innermost recesses of the human heart. After all, this is what Hebrews 4, verse 12 says. It says, quote, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. End of quote from God's word. This is how the Thessalonians came to embrace Paul's preaching as not being the word of men, but the very word of God. The Holy Spirit drove that word of God that was faithfully preached into the innermost recesses of their hearts, convicting them of their sins and persuading them to embrace the gospel that was preached. The Holy Spirit's anointing 
taught them who Jesus is. They didn't need any outside testimony. They did not need any outside evidence. They didn't need some rational, uh, convincing evidence. They didn't need any persuasive arguments from men. All they needed was God's word itself. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we read, quote, And for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That's exactly how the first convert in Europe believed, Lydia. We read in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, quote, And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. There you have it. Lydia heard the truth of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit took the faithful preaching of the gospel by the anointed one, the Apostle Paul, and drove that truth into the innermost recesses of her heart. The Holy Spirit's anointing was wonderfully manifested to her. The Spirit opened her heart. The Spirit opened her mind. The Spirit regenerated her darkened soul. The Spirit enabled her to see the glory of Christ offered in the gospel message. And the Spirit enabled her to believe in Jesus to the salvation of her soul. These truths about the Holy Spirit's anointing are exactly what Jesus said when he was still ministering on earth prior to his death and resurrection. In speaking to those who rejected him, Jesus said in John 8:47, quote, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. End of quote from God's word by Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, quote, But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. End of quote from Jesus. As I mentioned earlier in the 1 Thessalonians 1 passage, the gospel comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing full conviction of biblical truths. This is why the gospel is said to be the dunamis, or the power of God for salvation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, which says, quote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. End of quote. Yes, the gospel is the dynamite of God. For our English word for dynamite is derived from this Greek word, dunamis. The gospel is spiritual dynamite. Nothing is the same when the Holy Spirit anoints the Word of God. Nothing is the same. And what I always say to us, you don't need to argue with these outside criteria about the Bible to be the Word of God and such and such. 
You just simply need to preach the word of God. You simply need to throw down the aisles of the philosophy philosophy department at the college a gospel grenade, the dunamis of God. It explodes. And those in God are going to bring the saving faith. They hear the word of God. They hear Jesus preaching to their hearts from that gospel message. Yes, the gospel is the dunamis of God. It is the dynamite of God. The Spirit illumines. The Spirit regenerates. It is the power of the Spirit that brings light into a darkened heart. As Psalm 36, 9 says, In thy light we see light. In thy light we see light. You've got to have the light of God. First, in order to see light, all of these biblical passages that I've mentioned are great examples of the application of what we call a presuppositional apologetic. And bringing it to bear on our topic of theistic evolution, we don't need anything besides the Bible for its understanding to be known of men. We don't need the testimony of men. We don't need the latest so-called scientific findings to illumine us to the meaning of Scripture. God forbid! We don't need the ramblings of a Charles Darwin, who he and his company, who hate God, to give us an accurate view of the doctrine of creation. Presuppositional apologetics and sola scriptura, they go very nicely together. I believe what the Bible itself tells me about the doctrine of creation. I can believe the early chapters of Genesis as plainly given. Why? Because the Holy Spirit can enable me, the Holy Spirit can enable you to interpret Scripture with Scripture. No Christian needs the lens of science to lead him into truth. Now, this doesn't mean that true science is irrelevant, nor is it denigrating the use of true science. But it does say this, it does put science where it belongs, below Scripture, not alongside of it and not above it. Again, the issue is not science per se, but particular philosophies or perversions of science. Evolution is a perversion of science. We can trust in the plain meaning of the doctrine of creation. God did create the universe out of nothing, by the word of his power. God did all of this in the space of six six ordinary days, approximately 6,000 years ago. God did create man and woman instantaneously, endowing them with his image, thereby creating them with great dignity, a dignity which just a little lower than God, says Psalm 8. How insulting to God and man, for anyone espousing the Christian faith to support the notion that man descended from lower forms of life. Let's simply accept the Bible for what it really is, the Word of God. It needs nothing outside of itself to be authoritative. Hallelujah. Praise God. And I trust that this lecture series has been a blessing to you.